Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, this episode of Other People is brought to you by Audible, the world's leading provider of digital audio books. Over at audible.com, there are hundreds of thousands of titles to choose from in a tremendous variety of genres, and you can play them on any digital listening device that you have in your hand, whether it's an iPhone, a Kindle, an Android, etc. And wait a minute, here's the deal, everybody. Right now, for listeners of this program, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial. Go get Beautiful Ruins by Jess Walter, my guest on this program in episode 89, or how about The Big Short, the big bestseller by Michael Lewis, author of Moneyball. Just about any book at Audible can be yours free of charge. And if you do this, if you go get the free audio book, it helps the program. I get a few bucks. That's a nice thing to do. To download your free audio book, just go to audibletrial.com slash other people. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash other people. This is a wonderful deal. It is available right now. These are books. You can listen to them. Go and get them. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right, right, everybody. Here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is two writers talking. This is you in space somewhere out there listening. Thank you for being here. It's good to be with you. My name is Brad Listy. I'm sitting here. I'm back in the home office in Los Angeles. I have returned from my trip to Israel. I flew home on 9-11 because that's a good idea. That's the day that you want to fly home from Israel to the United States on 9-11. And uh, actually, there's some truth to that in a weird way. I did have some good uh, odd timing, I suppose. I left the Middle East just as things were about to get uh, a bit hostile, apparently. Not necessarily in Israel proper, but all around Israel, in Cairo, in Benghazi, and whatnot, with the uh, embassy attacks and the torching of a Kentucky Fried Chicken. But uh, I should say, in fairness, that my time over there in Israel was very peaceful. Uh, the people were great. I had no problems. I never felt unsafe. I did feel uh, kind of like an alien walking around, uh, particularly in Jerusalem, uh, just a little bit in the old city, uh, you know, moving around in those narrow streets, the markets, the temples, the holy sites, the culture, the religiosity. Uh, there was in inside of me some, some you know, some sense of uh, what am I doing here? How do I fit into this? 
social structure. I am not a practitioner of a religion. I observe no deity. Uh, that's not my particular worldview. Uh, and, and is that even proper phrasing? Do you observe deities? Is that how you say that? Uh, anyway, you know, uh, it was a good trip and it was a big experience. It's hard to encapsulate it quickly or to encapsulate it at all, uh, for that matter. Uh, but I was just sort of in it while I was there and I did some mild tweeting. I don't know if you were following that. I took a few photos with my phone, uh, a video or two, but otherwise I was just there. I was riding around on a bike. I like to rent a bike when I go to foreign countries and I like to ride around on a bicycle and uh, I was just sort of existing on the ground in Israel and uh, that tends to be my MO. Uh, I don't like to get too caught up in trying to document every single second of every day because I feel like that sucks uh, vital energy out of the experience. And, uh, you know, when it comes right down to it, my time there uh, wasn't about big spectacular moments necessarily. And travel doesn't tend to be about big spectacular moments. It's about uh, odd moments. It's about uh, small moments of minor epiphany. Uh, like, for example, when I was in Jerusalem and I was sitting in a bar, uh, it was late, it was a hotel bar, and I'm a stone's throw uh, from the old city and from the site of the resurrection, uh, or one of them anyway. There are multiple sites apparently where, where the resurrection supposedly took place. But I'm there and I'm, I'm close to the heart of it all and all of a sudden uh, the song Regulate comes on. Do you know what I mean? The one by Nate Dogg, the late, great Nate Dogg. You know what I'm talking about? A clear white moon woman, she was on the streets trying to consume some search for the eat. So and uh, it was just, you know, it was an odd uh, juxtaposition is what I'm saying, where suddenly I'm sitting there, I'm having a, a beverage, I'm enjoying a beverage, and I realize, uh, I have this moment where I realize the strange collision between old world and new, between antiquity and modernity, between the crucifixion and gangster rap, if you know what I'm saying. And uh, for some reason, that was a kind of a recurring theme throughout my visit. I kept noticing the music. Uh, like, for instance, on my way into Jerusalem, I'm in a cab, and I even made a voice memo documenting this as I rode. I recorded it. Uh, it's not a great recording, but I did make note of the strange musical moment as I entered the holy city. So here's a bit of that. So this is the, uh, the song that is playing as I enter um, Jerusalem. Right here. And I'm not, I'm not sure. Can you hear that? I'm not sure if you could actually hear it, but uh, the song is Rock Me Amadeus uh, by Falco, I believe, playing in the cab as I entered Jerusalem. So that happened, and I noticed it. It was a very fascinating experience. The trip went fast. Uh, what else? The airport security process. That's something to talk about. The airport security process in Tel Aviv is extremely robust. It's extremely robust. It took me almost two and a half hours to get through it, uh, which I think was a little bit excessive even by uh, regular standards. You know, I think I got it a little bit worse. There were, uh, there were interviews. Uh, there were screenings. There were x-rays. There were bag swabs. There were one-on-one -on -one conversations. Uh, and, you know, I was telling them that I'm a writer. They were asking me what I did for a living. I told them that I'm a writer and then I'm working on a novel, uh, I just told them the truth. And I didn't see any reason to lie. But if you're a writer and you've ever worked on a book and somebody asks you, you know, what is your book about, then you know how hard it can be to answer that question succinctly and how the answers, when you attempt them, tend to be long-winded 
and a little convoluted and possibly even strange. So there I was standing there in the Tel Aviv airport talking to these people, trying to tell them about my odd, subversive, darkly comic novel, part of which takes place in Israel. And by the end of it, they were looking at me like, uh, this guy is suspect, he is a, a little bit odd, and we are raising a red flag. He is a potential threat, and we are going to interrogate him thoroughly. But, uh, you know, all's well that ends well. It worked out. And, uh, oh, before I forget, I did get a message from a listener this week asking about the back catalog, meaning like all the old episodes of the show, uh, as they pertain to iTunes. And I just want to clarify this. If you subscribe to the program at iTunes, which I recommend, it is free, uh, you will notice that when you subscribe, you get access to 50 episodes. That's the maximum number that will show up on your iTunes screen at any given time. Uh, but if you want to get older episodes from the back catalog, you can do that free of charge by going and like hunting down individual episodes at iTunes, I believe. Or the easiest way is just go to otherpeoplepod.com. That's the show's official website. You can listen right there online. Uh, you can also download the episodes and uh, then put them into your iTunes or whatever. So hopefully that makes sense. Uh, the point I'm trying to make is that you can have uh, every single episode uh, free of charge. And let me also note, speaking of free of charge, that I do now have a donate button over at otherpeoplepod.com. If you go to otherpeoplepod.com and you look at the top of the page in the right sidebar, you'll see a little button that says donate. If you like the program and you want to throw me a couple of bucks so I can keep it going, uh, that would be greatly appreciated. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. So my guest today is Lee Stein. She is the author of the novel, The Fallback Plan, and the brand new poetry collection, Dispatch from the Future, both of which are now available from Melville House. Uh, and here's a funny story. Lee and I actually talked twice. The first time we talked, uh, it was wonderful, but it turned out that there was an echo on the phone Lee's phone was echoing a little bit. So uh, I decided rather than make you sit through an echoey conversation that we would give uh, the, you know, the conversation another go. So this right here is our second conversation. Uh, every bit is enjoyable, I think. Uh, I hope you like it. Here she is, ladies and gentlemen, the lovely and talented Lee Stein. I'm at home in Brooklyn. Oh, you are? Okay, so you're, you're not in your office. The last time we did this... Uh... You were at your office, right? That was where the echo happened? Yes, but I quit that job. You did? I did. So 
so now I don't have that phone anymore, which is why I was like agonizing about using my cell or where I would be. Okay, so did you quit the job because of the echo? <laughs> yeah. That was it. That no, was, I that didn't. Was, that was the breaking point. <laughs> yeah. Like I can't take this. <laughs> so wait, what what job was it now? This was a the job at, in a children's publishing. Yes. Okay, and, and what were you doing there again? Um, I was doing a little bit of everything. I was like an editor, and I did rights and permissions and contracts, and I did publicity and marketing. Um, and I'd been there for like four and a half years. And um, I don't remember if I told you this already, but I'm in school full time, and this is my last semester, and so I'm trying to like clear up some space for myself. Oh, right, right, right. Okay, so you just you quit that, and now you're just you're solely going to school, that's it? Well, and then I have, like, two part-time teaching jobs. <laughs> okay, teaching? Teaching drama to kids. Drama? Yeah. Like like theater, like acting and plays? Yeah, yeah, like musical theater. You can do that? <laughs> yeah. I mean, do you, like, I mean, meaning are you qualified, educationally speaking, to do that, or is this just something you feel, like, instinctively able to do? Well, I kind of fell into teaching. Um, I trained as an actress, and I thought that's what I wanted to be. And when I was, like, 17, my acting teacher I'd had since third grade had to leave because she had MS and she couldn't teach anymore. And she kind of, like, passed the baton to me to take over her classes. So that's when I started teaching kids. And then I've just kept doing it for, like, 10, 10 or 11 years now. That's got to be fun, though, right? Oh, I love it. I love it. And, and and you said third graders? They're like K through uh, maybe seventh graders. Oh, okay. So you've got like the whole range. So what uh, what kind of plays yeah. are you doing? Are you doing like Fiddler on the Roof and stuff like that? <laughs> yeah, we do songs from musicals, sometimes with creative twists. Like um, we did My Favorite Things from The Sound of Music, but I had them rewrite it so it really was about their favorite things. So it was about like Pokemon and stuff. That's what kids are into these days? <laughs> Yeah, they're into weird stuff. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's weird. Like now that I have a kid, I like, but I'm only at the two year old stage. But you just sort of, I guess you just sort of go through it with them. And if you're teaching, I guess it's kind of the same thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so can you sing? Do I know this? And th- but by the way, you're going to have to forgive me if I ask you things that you think I should already know, just because my memory is terrible. But uh, obviously, you're a singer. You can perform and sing. Yeah, I love singing. I uh, when. When I was, like, a teenager, it was a decision between going to acting school or, like, going to music conservatory and becoming an opera singer. Oh, my God. Will you, will you sing for me? <laughs> no. <laughs> Absolutely not. People are shy. This is the thing. People are shy about singing, it seems like. And, you know, coming from, from my perspective where I am tone deaf and have no musical ability whatsoever, I always think to myself, if I could sing, I would sing all the time. You know what I'm saying? You would sing all the time? I, I mean, yeah. I think this. I could be totally wrong. But it's like somehow it's embarrassing to have this like great talent. Do you know what I'm saying? <laughs> I feel like the conditions have to be right, and I feel like I have to be like prepared, and then I can do my best. But when, when like, my dad, you know, we're out to dinner or something, and my dad is like, do one of your accents for everybody. Or, like, why don't you sing for everybody? It's like, am I a trained monkey? Like, no, <laughs> right. I'm, I'm a person. Right, right, right. It's like when you're a comedian and people are like, you know, be funny. Do something funny. You know, like, that's that kind right. of Right. Say something funny. Yeah. And then it's like, uh. So were you, a, like, you were a musical theater kid in high school? Like, were you hanging with, like, the, was it like Glee? Is that what you were, was that your situation? <laughs> Yeah, I was I was kind of in the drama, 
you know, drama kids club, but I wasn't really close to anyone. I mean, I hung out with these people, but, um, I, I'm not in touch with any of them anymore. I never feel like I really belonged, even though that's the only place I did belong. Yeah, you know, I remember, like, I remember there was, like, a musical theater group in my high school that was, like, award-winning, and, like, they were very talented, and I remember being around uh, groups of them at parties, and sometimes they would sing, and they would all sit there and sing, like, these, like, you know, uh, I forget, you know musical numbers, and they would be, like, smiling and, like, looking each other in the eyes and, like, singing. It was, like, fully... Like, <laughs> You know what I'm saying? Like, did, did you ever do anything yeah. like that? Did you, did you ever get together with, like at parties with these people and like break into song? I don't remember that, but I, my college roommate, um, I think we were, we were at acting school together, but I think we must've been put together as roommates because we both loved to sing and she was a wonderful singer and we used to sing all the time and she would harmonize with me. It was like super dorky, but I loved it. And, and so I could like practice in our tiny, tiny, tiny room and it would be cool with her, and then she would practice or whatever. And, like, what kind of song would you guys be singing? Like, are, are you singing, like, popular music, or are you singing, like, traditional? Like, show tunes. Show tunes, okay. So you're into, you're into <laughs> yeah. show tunes. Did you ever consider being in a band or participate in any kind of, like, uh, you know, musical outlet of that kind? No, I've never wanted to be in a band. I feel like I'm the only person who's never wanted to be in a band. Yeah. I, I've, you know, I, I dream, I've had like that dream of like, what would it be like to be in a band? But I never obviously made any inroads. And then, uh, <laughs> so with regard to show tunes though, I mean, that's like a very specific taste. And like, uh, do you love to go to the theater? Like, are you totally a huge fan of all that stuff? Yeah, but I don't go that often in New York. I mean, it seems like the very obvious place to be lapping up theater, but it's, so expensive to see a Broadway show, um, and that's usually where the musicals are. Right, right. Well, you know, I, I've had this thought, like, and I think part of it was maybe like marijuana induced in my youth or something. But uh, <laughs> I think I think musicals are underdone in cinema, and like, and maybe don't realize their full potential as comic vehicles. And like, uh, just follow me for a second here. But when you think about like the Book of Mormon. Uh -huh. I think that's sort of what I'm talking about. Like you can take musicals and I think Trey and Matt have done this, uh, you know, not only with the book of Mormon, but also with their movies where they use, uh, show tune, you know, show tune, uh, melodies and the, you know, the musical tropes and employ them in the art of like really subversive and kind of disgusting humor. And like, I don't think we see enough of that. It's always too scrubbed. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. No, and I was really excited when I heard about Glee coming out. Like, someone described it to me, and they were like, how are you not watching this? This is right up your alley. And I tried watching it, and I feel like the script was so bad, I couldn't get into it. I couldn't tell if it was trying to be, like, a drama or a comedy. I loved the musical numbers, but I couldn't get into that show. But it seemed like the perfect show for me. Yeah, I mean, you know, and I, I like musicals. Like, they make me happy. There's something about... Uh, people breaking into song and there's something about like the sort of fantasy world that they present that can be like really appealing, but it's got to be the right tone. Like for me, it's got to be funny or it's at least got to be acknowledging in some way that it's funny. I don't know. Do you know what I'm saying? It's got to be self-aware. Yeah. Like it can't take itself. It can't take itself too seriously for me. I think that's what I'm trying to say. Totally. Yeah. I hear you. And I had this teacher in acting school who like, um, was really smart and really intimidating, and he asked us all, he was like, why do people sing in musicals? And no one 
could figure it out. We all just kind of stared at him and waited for him to answer the question. And he said, it's because they feel so much that they can't just talk anymore and they have to sing, like they have to go to the next level, which is music. And that just like blew my mind, but it's true. I think so too. Okay, I, I was waiting for you to undercut that, and I was going to be upset because I was totally buying it the whole time. Like that's, a, I think that's exactly right. <laughs> <You know? laughs> it's like elevated. It's elevated feeling. I mean, it's like almost what I love about poetry too. It like it's elevated. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess that, and so that's a natural outgrowth of the of the musical theater. Like, do you do you draw like a direct line from poet from the musical theater work that you do or have done? Uh, into why you started writing poetry? Actually, no, but I, <laughs> I just made that connection now. But some people ask me, like, oh, how does your teaching life inform your writing? And it doesn't at all. I, I, it's so separate to me. I love my work with kids, and I love writing. And um, this winter, when my novel came out, I had to take some time off from teaching to go on my book tour. And when I told my students that I was leaving, I'd be back in a few months, I promised I'd come back. They were, like, devastated and also really confused. Like, what do you mean you're a writer? Because they don't know that identity of mine. They see you only um, as a teacher. I'm only a teacher. And then one, like, this really cool girl, Maisie, who has, like, her hair is half pink and half blue, and her parents are like, let her do whatever she wants. She's like, can I read your book? And I was like, well, it's, you know, it's more for adults. And she was like, well, I read Bossy Pants. And I was like, you did? She's like, yeah. And I was like, well, my book's still just for adults. <laughs> And we're talking about the fallback plan. Yeah. Um, yeah, but they wanted to read. I mean, they wanted to read my book. If I was leaving to do something for a book, they were like, oh, like, we want to read it. And so that was like, wow. And you, and, but you know they're going to read it. They're going to, I mean, kids aren't stupid. They can find it, right? <laughs> oh, I hope. I hope not. I don't want them reading that. Right. Why? Because you think they would glean autobiographical stuff from it and, and have a Well, there's like drugs and sex and um, death and girls torturing other girls and like, right. it's mature stuff. It's, right. not, it's not where the wild things are or something. Oh, but okay, so how old are these kids that you're talking about? Because, you I mean, if they're seventh graders, that's one thing, but if they're like second graders, that's... They're like 10, they're like 10, 11, 12. Yeah, too young. Yeah. You want to protect them. I do. Um, I want to. I want to be like you know. I was oh, say, sorry. Go I was, ahead. I was just going to say you want to protect them from your art. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was just going to say like I want to say to them like no, you don't understand. You're in this one quadrant of my life, and like here's this other quadrant of my life, but you need to stay over here. You can't go over there. Right. 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 Well, and. I don't know. I mean, it does present, I think like parenthood sort of gives me a window into this and my daughter's going to get older and more sophisticated, obviously. So it's going to get tougher and tougher. I have to, I've already had to, like, had to start monitoring what I say, uh, which when they're, Oh, cause in, she imitates. Yeah. She imitates and she's, she gets everything. Her, her mind is a little steel trap and like, you don't realize how much that they're, <laughs> that they're picking up. And so when she was an infant, I didn't have to self-censor at all. And self-censoring isn't something that I'm good at anyway. Uh, and I have, I think, probably <laughs> unconventional ideas about language when it comes to children. Uh, like I've, uh -huh. lo I've long held, and we'll see how long I can hold on to this. But I've, I've long held that swearing is not a big deal as long as the words aren't used to injure, and that this whole notion—it's oh, interesting. like the George Carlin school of cussing, where you know, if you call someone, <laughs> if you call someone a fucker and tell them they're a piece of shit, that's one thing. 
But if you stub your toe and say, shit, that's another thing. You know, I think there should be some delineation. And I'm not, yeah. I'm not offended by it. You know, I'm, I'm offended when someone tries to attack with language, but I'm not offended by some sort of uh, comical use or emotional expression that falls outside of the context of anger that involves these words. And I, I have sort of sworn to myself ever since I was a kid when this all sort of, you know, sort of occurred to me that I would never penalize my own child for using these words because they're just words. And I think to imbue them with all this, like, uh, you know, this sense of taboo is silliness. Uh, you know, and, and uh, I don't know. I just, I don't have a problem with it. So but what happens when she's like in first grade and you get a call from the teacher that's like, right. your daughter said shit when she got her spelling test back. <laughs> like, See, this is the thing. I would be like, okay, so what? You know, <laughs> like, I, I mean, clearly you're not teaching her how to spell if she said shit. So worry about that. Do you see what I'm saying? So I run up against that. You run up against like social norms and then your own personal feelings. And like, obviously I don't want to put my daughter in a situation where she's getting in trouble. Um, but you know, it's, it's, it's a little bit difficult. Well, it's also true. Like, like when you have kids or when you're around kids, it's like, you really have to ask yourself, like, like, what are my boundaries? What are my rules? Like, what am I okay with? What am I not okay with? I, I tell, yeah, I want to be okay with as much as possible. I don't want to police a lot. Yeah, you know, but I, I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. I obviously want to be attentive, but I don't want my daughter to feel bound by rules that ultimately are arbitrary. Because I feel like, you know, once she figures it out, I don't know. It's it's so delicate. You have to do a little bit of that. I think you have to do a little bit of enforcing of stupid rules to sort of protect your child from uh, the sillinesses of the world, but. I just don't want her to mm -hmm. get. I don't want her to get older and realize that this stuff is is uh, that I've been telling her is uh, bullshit, and then to like hold it against me. Do you know what I'm saying? I want. Mm -hmm. her, I want her to look back and and feel like I treated her fairly or something. Totally. So anyway, you you do not have children, correct? That's right. No, I do not. <laughs> do not. Okay, let's then let's talk about you as a child. Let's go back to your childhood. I want to hear. Uh, you know, the story of your, uh, your, you know, your young year, your younger years, and then how you, uh, you know, eventually blossomed into this, uh, <laughs> you know, this writer, this writer on the, uh, the cutting edge of, uh, literary stardom. <laughs> well, that's very generous. Yeah. Um, well, I was an only child till I was eight, which I think was really important because, I was very independent and I did things by myself and I didn't need to be around other kids or other people. I could just be in my room making projects or like making little books or writing letters or uh, I was very self-sufficient. And so that continued on um, until adolescence and I started writing poetry and then in high school I started making zines in my bedroom and I started getting on the internet and I was always just kind of like doing my own thing. Um, but you had a sibling who was eight years younger than you? Yes, I have a younger sister who came along. Okay, did that affect you in a negative way? Like, were you pissed off about that to suddenly have to share time? Not at first. At first it was like I'd been you know, yearning for a sibling. Even though I, I liked being alone and doing my own thing, all my friends had siblings. And I was like, when am I going to have one, you know? And so she was like my little doll, and I carried her out of the hospital, and I got to pick her middle name and... Um, I changed her diapers. I mean, I was like a little mom. So wait, what did you name? And what, then, was her, what was her middle name? What did you select? Well, her first name her first name is Hattie after my great grandmother, and then I got to pick the middle name, and I loved Anne of Green Gables, so she's Hattie Ann. 
Okay. That's nice. I thought, thought you were going to like some, like some sort of like passive aggressive thing. You were going to give her like <laughs> Eustace or something, you know? <laughs> no, it, it flows. It works. Okay. Yeah. I think like I get, so really, then in, I get really into the phonetics of names, you know, it's very important to me. I think names are super important. And I think the fact that she and I both have unusual names has kind of shaped us as people. Yeah, you sort of see. This is the okay. Now we're going to open a whole can of worms, and I've talked about this before. But like, I have a, I have issues with my own name, so I worry about that. You know, you tell me that, and like a shiver of fear goes up my spine that you like grow into your name. Really? Yeah, because Brad is like the de facto name. It's a cultural signifier for douchebag in popular cinema <laughs> and television. So, and that's, oh, and so you feel like you have to fulfill the role of a Brad. Yeah, I mean, I hope not. I hope I'm somehow defying the trend. I mean, I think the fact that I'm this like hyper-conscious of it is maybe a good sign, but um, it's, <laughs> it's long been a concern of mine. And I think if you're paying attention, you know, if you watch movies, it's not just me um, trying to be silly. Like, it's there's actual truth to this. Like, for whatever reason, characters named Brad are always idiots, it seems like. Very rarely are they not. <laughs> So I, you know, it's been something that's bothered me for a long time. So hopefully that's not like a, a blanket truth. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So you've thought about it too from the other side. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, of course. I, I, and I just think that like I pay attention to people's names. Like I get, I, I get finicky about it. Like I think athletes uh, or uh, even rock stars or, or anybody in whatever profession that they happen to have, if you see that they're having like enormous success. And then I hear their name. It's like, oh, Axel Rose. Like, of course he's a rock star. Like, of course. <laughs> but if his name was Brad, if his name was Brad Rose, there's no way that's happening. And that, I don't care how well he, I don't care how well he can sing or what he looks like or any of it. You know what I'm saying? Like, the name has to be there too. Like, I can sort of sense that sometimes. Um, and I guess there yeah. might, there might be exceptions, but like you know, uh, you think of like Jonathan Franzen. It's like, of course he's like you know on the cover of Time. He's the great American novelist. Like that has to be you know his name. It's got like the what is that, consonance or assonance? I forget which one's which, but you know what I'm saying. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sometimes it feels It has like, a rhythm. It's, it's pleasant to say. It's pleasant to say, and it sort of fits. You know, it sort of fits the person. And I, I feel like... Rare. But even I just I just listened to your interview with Lydia Yuknovich, and I just want to say her name a million times. I love her name. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's a great name. And uh, yeah. I think that so when when I name things, I guess the the way to like bring this full circle is that when I name my daughter, I, I felt you know hyper conscious of trying to do a good job, and you know, Lord knows if I did or not. But uh, even when I name my dog, okay, I got my first dog when I was twenty years old. Uh huh. You know, sort of foolishly, I went and got this dog. I got a border collie, and I was so fixated. And boy, oh god, did I screw this up. So I was fixated on trying to get the name right. I went and bought baby naming books from the bookstore. Oh, my God. Uh, yeah, for a dog. Because I was what I was panicked about was that I was going to name the dog and, uh, you know, screw it up somehow. And I, I, what I wanted was I wanted to have gone through a very comprehensive process so that I would have seen just about every possible name so that I wouldn't name the dog and then look back. And be like, oh shit! Like they should have been. It should have been this. So no, wait. It gets even better. So then I I went uh, to get the dog. I got him on this ranch out near the uh, the Utah Colorado border. Like just a, it was a ranching. You know, ranchers had some puppies, and I was going to get this collie from them. So uh -huh. we drive out there, and I get this puppy. And then my friends and I go to Moab that night to camp, and uh, we get uh, you know we get a little wasted. 
and my friend's like messing with me. He's like, dude, you have a dog now. Like you're a parent, you know, <laughs> like completely inside of my head. And then we had to pick a name. And in this like state at like four in the morning in the middle of the Canyonlands, I decided to name the dog Merlin of all things, which is like the name of a, I mean, exactly what Merlin, you, like the wizard. Exactly. Which is what you would name a dog. <laughs> name a dog when you're 20 and you're in the desert. And uh, it was that or Elvis, you know, so it was just bad all around. But luckily he was, you know, it kind of fit. I mean, he had like a white beard, you know, it's, but I love it. Yeah. So anyway, I feel like this is, I feel like I'm talking too much. Like, let's, let's get back to your, uh, <laughs> let's get back to your childhood. And okay, uh, my childhood. your sister Hattie and, you know, you were talking about that and being an only child and how that led you to be uh, self-sufficient. Yes, and um, I think it was only until, like, starting in high school where I was kind of, like, resentful of this, like, adorable person who got all the good attention, and I was just kind of this brooding, depressed teenager, um, starting when I was 13. Uh, I was diagnosed with depression, so when I say I was a depressed teenager, I mean, like, like, really, really bad. Clinically. Like, how how did this manifest? Well, when I was 13, I was actually suicidal, and the only person I told was um, my online friend, David, who lived in Las Vegas, and we didn't know what each other looked like because this was like before digital cameras, before Facebook, so David and I had exchanged real letters in the mail with a picture of ourselves because we were already, we were like so close, we were talking on the phone, and my dad was really suspicious of this guy, because even though he was 13, his voice had changed, and he had a baritone voice, so my dad would like eavesdrop on our phone conversations, but we met in an Andrew Lloyd Webber message board, because we (laughs) love Andrew Lloyd Webber musicals. Oh my god. Okay. So we really were, we both really were 13, he wasn't lying, Um, but because he had sent me a picture, he knew what town I lived in. He knew my address. And when I told him I planned to kill myself, I was, I had it all planned out. I was like, I'm doing it on Thursday. I'm just going to take all the prescription medication I can find in the house. Um, I just want to say goodbye to you. And he tried to talk me out of it. And I was like, nope, I'm doing this. And he called the police in my town. And they called my middle school, because there's only one middle school. And the middle school called my parents. And, like, that's how my life was saved. Now, in retrospect, I don't know if I would have gone through with my plan. Um, but he, I mean, I think he did something really brave. <laughs> wow. For that's a kid. Un- that's unbelievable. Do you, have you seen him or ever met him in the aftermath or since then? I haven't ever met him. But years later, we lost touch um, for a while. And then when I was 22, 23, I was living in Albuquerque writing my first novel and I worked as a waitress and in my, and we had like a, we were kind of near the highway. So we got a lot of um, tourists or people coming in and out of Albuquerque. And one night I had this family and they were like really gregarious and outgoing. And I was like really getting along with them. And I asked the dad what he did for a living. And he said, I run a theater company in Las Vegas for kids. And I said, rainbow theater company. And he said, yeah. How do you know that? And I said, do you know David? And I gave him his last name. He's like, yeah, he's been in all the shows. How do you know David? And I was like, well, we met online when we were 13, which he thought was like hilarious. And so then through that, I like found David on Facebook. So now we're Facebook friends, but we still haven't met in person. 
But okay, but you guys like chat every once in a while or whatever. Trade. We're like in touch or as much as you can be with like a Facebook friend, I guess. Wow, that's crazy. So, uh, what happened after you know your parents received this information from the what, what was it your middle school? You know, like once they got that news, did they confront you? Like, were you hospitalized? Like, how did they handle that? Well, uh, my mom is a psychologist and. Um, she didn't want me hospitalized because she thought that would be more traumatic than what I was already going through. And I think part of me wanted to be hospitalized. Like, I wanted the crisis that I felt on the inside. I wanted people to, like, acknowledge how horrible it was for me. But uh, I was sent to a psychiatrist, and I was excited to go because I thought, like, finally I'm going to get this attention that I'm seeking and, like, help that I need. But my dad took me to the appointment, and he asked my dad to come in the room with me, and my little sister had to come with us. And the psychiatrist asked my dad every question, and then my dad translated it to me. So I was never talking directly to the doctor. Interesting. And that's that's like... The psychiatrist would say, like, is she sleeping? And my dad would say, are you sleeping? And I'd be like, (laughs) yeah, a lot. My dad would be like, she's sleeping a lot. (laughs) Is that standard? I mean, I have no idea how this stuff works, you know? Like, is that, have you, I mean, does your mom have any window into that since she's a psychologist? Like, is that how it works with kids? I don't think so. I mean, I was 13. I wasn't like five. I mean, so I hated him and he put me on Paxil, which made me shake all the time. And I was so embarrassed to be shaking all the time because I didn't really tell anybody what was going on. Holy shit. So then... I got a new I got a new psychiatrist and a new therapist and I ended up finally basically the third doctor I found was the one that I stuck with um for like 5 years. And it helped. Yeah, it helped a lot. Okay. I mean cuz like you know it's a depression I think is sort of a or not even sort of I think it's a normal uh thing for a lot of writers. I mean I think it's a reality for a lot of people who are in the arts period. They they seem to often go hand in hand though not always. Sure. And, sure. you know, did you find, I guess, like that particular experience, uh, you know, and, and dealing with mental illness and going through, you know, treatment and everything as a kind of fulcrum for your creative life? Or were you already sort of like on that path in a really distinct way before that? I think my poetry is definitely tied in to my emotional self um, and my my acting, which I don't do anymore, but I think that like poetry and acting to me were like very emotional pursuits. And so I felt so emotional all the time that it made sense that that's what I would do. Um, when were your parents encouraging you to do this sort of stuff? Was this an outgrowth of like the therapy? Like, you know, was your doctor like you should write some stuff or, you know, that seems like a natural, <laughs> a natural thing to advise somebody. No, no, it wasn't at the time. I mean, I feel like I, the kind of kid I was, it would just be like, I'm doing this thing. I'm going to do this. I would just like say it and do it. I was never like, oh, maybe I should try it. Like, what should I do? You know? Um, so, and the poetry for me was like a very private thing. I wrote poems in my notebook. I didn't show my parents my poems. Those were like my private things. I think I shared them with my friends online. Would you read one for us now from your childhood? Do you have any uh, handy? <laughs> um, do I have any handy? No, I don't. You don't. But they do you, all rhyme. They all rhyme. Okay, but you kept these things, right? Do you still have them somewhere? I don't know. They're probably at my parents' house. Yeah, I'm, I'm terrified to read them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. See, I, I, I went through, like, I had this day 
where I threw away all of my old journals. I was just like, I started reading them and it was, so, <gasps> yeah, I started reading them and I was like, this is just awful. Like, I don't want anyone to ever have to read this. And, um, you know, I don't, I'm not a, a hugely nostalgic person slash I like I'm dead inside and extremely cold. So like, I think I'll be okay with it. <laughs> But there is a, there are times where I'm like, why did I do, you know, maybe there was something valuable there that I could, you know, mine. But when I read those and, and granted I was writing some, I mean, some like song lyrics or poetry and like this, you know, uh, you know, it was, that wasn't all, that was the, the minority of the pages were covered with that. The rest of it, the rest of it was journaling. And basically it was just me complaining about life. You know, it was like, I called them my, yeah. com my complaining books. And I was like, who needs to read like, you know, 2000 pages of me complaining. Well, it's funny, like, I really relate to what you're saying. I think, like, both of us as writers, we look at all the writing we've done in our whole life, and we're like, is this valuable? Is this usable? And then we're like, oh, that's not usable. But maybe that's not the point. But for us, it is the point, because we're writers. But for other people, they would just keep their journals, because they would be like, well, these are just the journals I kept. Yeah, for me, it's like, is this usable? Is this worth anything? <laughs> right, right. No, that's how I am, too. But I also just, just the idea of like this, hor you know, the, the horrible writing that you have to do to get anywhere near competency or, or competence. I, I forget, I don't know which word it is, but, um, you know, just to get to that point, I don't know if there's any need to like hang on to all that awfulness. Like maybe literary scholars, uh, you know, if they're, if they're looking at the work of, of a, you know, really significant, you know, writer in the history of literature or something, it's useful to them to see the development, but, um, you know, maybe I'm I'm sort of calling my hand and saying that I doubt that's going to be the case. Like I, I find it sort of hard. To <laughs> but uh, you know, who knows? Yeah. I mean, who knows? Maybe maybe someday uh, someone would want to look at that. But I, I sort of doubt it, and I think it's it's hard to uh, posit yourself that way. Like, you know, I say that, but I think that a lot of writers also. And tell me if this is the case for you. Like, I think a lot of writers do secretly think of their work somehow surviving them. I think that's a very common impulse, like for wanting to write in the first place, like wanting to put down, um, you know, your existence or your particular view of existence, uh, you know, for posterity. Like, do you ever think of it that way? Yeah, it's a way to, yeah, absolutely. I think it's like, it's like the secret desire to live forever. Like your body will be gone, but your body of work maybe will exist. And I like often think things like, you know, let's say I have this illustrious writing career, let's say I write all these books and then I die, you know, of course. Are people going to read my emails? Like the way that we read, we want to read like J.D. Salinger's letters or something. I, you know, like what's, gonna, what's our digital legacy? Yeah, that's, you know, I've gotten more and more concerned about that. I was a lot more flippant about it, you know, five, ten years ago uh, because I just wasn't thinking, you know what I'm saying? And I didn't think of like the permanence of having things on the web and, um, you know, if I could go around and scrub all the things I've written on the web, I would love to, <laughs> you just can't do it. You know, you're sort of stuck with it, you know, you just got to own it. You just got to own it. So, uh, when did you start, I guess you got out of high school and then you did not, you did not go to college right away, correct? Or did you? Well, I dropped out of high school when I was 17 and then I went to community college for like a year and then. I moved to New York to go to acting school. I decided I was going to be an actress. Oh, that's that was the only thing that I thought I was good at. So why did you drop out um, of high school? Were you just sick of it? You were over it? I always, always hated it. And my mom tells the story. It's hard for me to like 
Satan in specific, but my mom tells a story that there was a weekend I went to this high school theater festival that I went to every year, and I forgot to bring my antidepressants over the weekend, and I stopped taking them. And then when I got back, I just, like, had a panic attack and walked out of the high school and just told my boyfriend at the time, I'm never going back there. And I remember that part, but I don't remember missing my medication. And she didn't tell me the story until, like, years later. She was like, well, that's how you dropped out of high school. And I was like, it is? That's why I dropped out of high school? I just remember just hating it forever, and finally I stopped. Isn't it weird, though, how we can sort of uh, cherry-pick our memories that way? Like, in, like very key, sure. significant details somehow get left out. But, um, you know, I think that happens. Like, uh, the way that we remember ourselves, it's, it's, a, it's a, you know, a kind of fiction. Sure, absolutely. So then you're in New York, and you're going to acting school where? At the American Academy of Dramatic Arts, which was a two-year acting conservatory. Um, like, who are some famous, and what's alu- funny, famous alumni? Are there famous alumni from this? Uh, yeah, Robert Redford, Danny DeVito, Adrian Brody, um, that that sexy one from Sex and the City. What's her name? Samantha. Kim Cattrall. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. So wait, now um, did you have to do some sort of performance to get into this thing? Yeah, I had to audition and do do monologues. Okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm picturing like the director, or, like the the admissions council, like sitting in like sh- the shadows while you're on stage. <laughs> that kind of thing, or were you just like in some class? Like a movie. Yeah. I was just like in an office, I think, for my audition. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And it went over well. What did you perform? I'm trying to remember. I was like, like so embarrassing. Like I was so into dark stuff. I think I did a monologue from Shoah, the Holocaust movie. I had the script, even though it's a documentary, they printed the script and I did like a monologue from Shoah. Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds bleak. Yeah. Pretty dark. So you were like, were you like goth? Were you like that dark or were you just like, you know, no, no, not like that. Okay. I was just dark on the inside. (laughs) (laughs) I was goth on the inside, man. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Okay. So did you flourish in this school, in this acting uh, environment? No, I, I was casting like all these love scenes and that was something that was like very uncomfortable for me. I think I was just so young and I hadn't had a lot of experience. Like I had a high school boyfriend, but that's it. And some of the, some of the people were in my class, like in their thirties, you know, they decided to become actors and were going to school, but I was just, I bar- I barely turned 19 and uh, I was in these all dramatic scenes and we're learning, I mean, we're learning technique and we're, I was just crying all the time. And that's partly because like, it was something I could do, <laughs> like I could turn it on. And so it would like add a level of, um, I don't know, drama to whatever scene I was in, if I could cry, which I could do. You were like weeping during all the love scenes. Is that basically the deal? Yeah. I mean, they weren't love. They were like, they were all like dramatic love scenes. Like, you know, we're breaking up or that kind of thing. Oh, okay. Yeah. 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 Um, so that was exhausting for me. And so, and it was every day you couldn't miss a day or you like failed every day you had to go. And, at night, I would come home and just write short stories in my dorm room and post them on Live Journal as like my therapy. <laughs> and I started getting all these Live Journal followers, 
who loved my writing, and it felt really great. And I got my first story published that year, and I was like, this is so great. Like, I'm just, it felt a little to me like performing, but I was like, I get to do it at home. (laughs) Yeah, in like a controlled environment where there aren't people like, you know, dancing around me and staring at me, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I think, you know, that's the thing about acting, though, is that you're performing somebody else's material, and it's a collaborative exercise, and then... You know, as far as the artistry goes and as far as pursuing that professionally or trying to make a living at it somehow, the thing that's always gotten me about that is that somebody has to give you permission to do it. You know, like that, I think, makes it especially hard. Like you could be a really good actor uh, and you can be out there trying to, to, you know, find work. But unless somebody says yes to you, you cannot do it. Whereas with a writing, you know, it might not make you any money, but at least you, you know, all you need is a piece of paper or a computer or something and you can do whatever you want as long as you have some time. Yes. And I also found like, you know, I still wanted to be an actress, but once I got to acting school and I had to spend hours a day with actors, I was like, Oh my God, I can't do this for the rest of my life. Do they drive you crazy? Yeah, it would drive me crazy. Okay, so what about what about other writers? Because this is something that I think is sort of interesting. Like, you know, communities of artists, like writers, I think, tend to have a sort of go-it-alone gene a lot of the time. That's what sort of drives them into this line of work. They don't want to work mm-hmm. in a company. They don't want to have coworkers. They don't want to – I know I have that sense. Like, if I had my way, I would not have uh, – I would have as few relationships that were quote-unquote business-oriented as possible. Uh, I don't like that kind of decorum. I don't like trying to deal with people at that level where you're wondering how it's going to impact your uh, financial life. Or do you know what I'm saying? Like, I, I just want to deal with people, yeah. with people as people and have human relationships with them, with no financial or business component tied to it. Um, nor do I want to have uh, a boss. Nor do I want to be the boss of anyone. Uh, that, <laughs> so, you know, do you feel that? Yeah. Way? Do you, does that have uh, like some sort of resonance with your own experience? Yeah, I mean, I dream of being able to make part of my living from writing so I don't have to have a boss. But also, it's one of the things I love about teaching kids. I'm the boss of these little people (laughs) who I love, you know, but they answer to me. I I really like that dynamic. Well, that's the thing, though, because I taught uh, college, and it's sort of a similar thing. You're kind of the king or the queen of your own domain, like, once the classroom stuff begins, you know? Like, unless you're somehow... the The only part of it that ever felt... Uh, you know, grim in the way that we just discussed was when we would have like peer evaluation and you would have like another teacher sitting in your room evaluating you. I don't know if you ever... Oh, yeah. That was the only time I felt like, okay, this is, you know, the teaching part isn't as fun anymore because now I feel like I'm being watched. Oh, yeah, that's the worst. But I liked, you know, I actually did enjoy like the classroom stuff. I didn't like grading papers. You know, that's the part of it that I hated. It was like taking like this big stack of essays home and having to like evaluate that part of it. And like slog through, yeah. Yeah, it was no fun. So, um, okay. So you did you drop out of acting school or did you stick it out for two years? I stuck that out for one year and then um, they basically cut half the class between year one and year two and you got a letter saying whether you'd gotten invited back and I did get invited back. But by that point, I had decided I want to be a writer. And what's funny is, like, I didn't realize that a writer was a job or, like, an aspiration until that year, which sounds so stupid, but I really didn't think about it. How old were you? You are 20 years old? 19, yeah. 19, okay. And so you find... I didn't have, like... 
I didn't have like the experience in high school where I had these amazing English teachers and I was reading all these amazing books and I was like exposed to all these writers. I mean, I read books and I liked books and I liked poetry, but it didn't occur to me that that was something I could aspire to be or do. Okay, and where and where were you raised again? Where was I raised? Yeah, like what part of the country again? Out, outside Chicago. Okay, right. And so, and and what was your high school like? Was it a, like a public high school, private high school? Yeah, it was a public high school. It, I, it, to me, it just felt very punitive. Like anything that I was interested in taking, they were like, "Well, you can't take this, so you've taken this, and you have to take this, and you have to do this." And yeah, yeah. I was, I was like, I I'm just going to like skip school and stay home all the time. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so you've decided to become a writer, and then what? Um, and then I um, lived in Brooklyn and worked in restaurants and joined my first writing workshop when I was 20 through a Craigslist ad. And um, that was great. Really? I mean, so who was the, what was the writing workshop? It was just right there in Brooklyn? So, yeah, it was in Williamsburg. Someone posted an ad and she was like, I'm starting a writing group. Um, you have to submit something to see if you'll get admitted. And I submitted a short story I'd written. I was 20 years old and I got in. And so we met once a week at this bar that didn't card me. So I got to drink beer. which was like very exciting for me at the time. And, um, and we workshop fiction. It was like me, a literary agent, a professor, a uh, headhunter with an MFA, a magazine editor, a journalist. I mean, these, these are like real writers and then me. Wow. Well, but see, it sounds like you kept getting green lights in your artistic pursuits. Like you got into the acting school, you got invited back, you applied to this, you know, you got a story published when you were in, what, 18, 19 years old. I mean, you had yeah. successes early, it sounds like. Yeah, and I've always been really ambitious. Like some writers I know, they like don't send their stuff out till they're sure it's perfect um, or they don't aim high, but I'll just like aim for whatever. I mean, like, you know. I'm just like, oh, I'm done with that. I want to get published. <laughs> I mean, I want the attention. That's like what I loved about acting. I love getting attention. Um, if we're going to be honest. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, you know, a lot, of, a lot of writers don't necessarily cop to their people. Just a lot of people don't necessarily cop to that. But you do want to have your work read, obviously. Or otherwise, why would you be trying to get it published, right? Yeah. I mean, Michael Michael Cunningham described it as like, why would you make this delicious cake and then say like, nobody can have this cake. I'm just going to like save this cake. Like you got to share the cake, you know, people want to eat it. That's right. That's right. I just, you know, you just got to hope that the cake is good. <laughs> like, yes. Otherwise, otherwise you're trying to like give people mediocre cake and like, that's never going to win you like a lot of friends. Yeah. Mediocre cake is the worst. Yeah. Who wants a mediocre cake? Um, so what, what did your folks think about this? Like you're obviously including them in, in, uh, this news that you've decided to stop acting and start, you know, trying to become a writer. Like, were they supportive? My mom's always been supportive of whatever I decide. My dad, um, has been freaked out the entire time until basically now when I have books published. <laughs> Yeah. No, it seems like there's always like a good cop, bad cop parent. Like even in families where the parents are, are, you know, it's a good, a good situation and the parents are relatively supportive. It seems like there's always one parent who leans towards more practical uh, considerations while the other parent sort of idealistically, uh, you know, cheers, you know, cheers you on no matter what you decide to do. I've, I mean, I've heard that repeat. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm not from a family of artists, so 
it's not really like there was a precedent, like, oh, she's like, she's just like so-and-so, you know? So it was, I think it was really scary for my dad because he wanted me to go to a four-year school and then get a corporate job with benefits um, the way he did. Right. That's exactly like me. Like, I mean, I have my great-grandfather was a pianist, uh, which is a tough word uh-huh. to say, but he... Uh, you know, he, he played the piano professionally and I, I have really very little information about him other than like a photograph of him sitting at the piano. I never knew him. Uh, but that's the only, and then I have like, a, you know, like an uncle who's an architect and can draw really well and an aunt who can paint and draw. Um, but that's it. I have no writers in my line at all and neither of my parents do anything artistic. So I'm sort of a anomaly, you know? Yeah. I have a poem called Mercy, and the first line of the poem is, the way you say pianist reminds me of a love story. <laughs> we'll see. There you go. I've screwed that up. <laughs> there you one go. Up. I think it's a funny word. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I, like I say it with like some degree of shame every time I talk. You know, Every time I say it, I, I blush. You have to like smirk when you say pianist. I mean, I think everybody does. Yeah. Or I find myself like overemphasizing the T at the end, and then, then it just sounds like... <laughs> so... Um, okay. And then I want to talk about you somehow winding up at the New Yorker, because that's interesting from a literary perspective. Like how did that all unfold? Sure. So I was, um, I moved to Albuquerque to write my novel with a guy. It was an adventure. It was great. It was terrible, chaotic. And why Albuquerque? Random. Just get out. <laughs> just let's get out of Brooklyn and go to the desert. Yeah, we were living outside Chicago at the time, and I had some money saved. It's whatever, it's a long story. But anyways, but it was his idea, and neither of us knew anyone there. And it seemed so thrilling to me to just kind of go. It's like going to Mars. Um, And so I was like, let's do it. So we did it. And That's and, the only reason. And, also, it's, it was called, the, the state nickname is the Land of Enchantment. <laughs> that was like as good enough a reason as any. Yeah, I mean, you know, when in doubt, flee to the land of enchantment with your, uh, your exactly. young, with your young lover. So, uh, did you like <laughs> Albuquerque as a city? Yeah, I loved it. You did? Okay. So I love New Mexico. Yeah. There's something, yeah, there's something kind of mystical happening. Like, New Mexico occupies, like, I feel like there's, like, Arizona, but Arizona to me seems like at any moment you could get, like, uh mugged by like hell's angels or something and like new mexico seems a little bit softer <laughs> do you know what i'm saying like there's something kind of there's something kind of menacing about arizona and then new mexico seems to me like you know land of george o'keefe and like uh, what is it topaz? Yes. topaz is that what everyone has down there that that kind of aqua blue turquoise turquoise yeah um yeah you know i think crystals and uh, healers that's what i'm thinking of yeah it's like mythical yeah. Did it live up to that, or was there a de- like a demystification process that happened? I mean, it couldn't have obviously been. No, it totally lived up to it. It was like an alien land. Like everyone we met would tell us a ghost story or a conspiracy theory, or you know, those mountains over there—that's where the government hides those their missiles. Those aren't real mountains. Like, <laughs> what are you talking about? Um, but they were also really casual about it, so you wanted to believe them. Well, you know, that is where they did the uh, the initial nuclear tests and like the, what, the Almodoro Range or whatever. I forget I forget the word. Yeah, Trinity Site. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, there's been some history with that, with military experimentation and stuff. 
Oh, absolutely. And we went to White Sands National Park, which is in Alamogordo, that's still part of it is like military. And if you look on Google Maps, it's blocked out. There's parts of it you can't look at because of the military. So we don't know what they're doing there. Great. Great. Um, So so how long were you there? And you were working on a novel and we're leading to The New Yorker, but you were working on your novel, Waiting Tables and Being in in Young Love, correct? Yes, for six months. (laughs) For for six months, and then you then you bailed on uh, on Albuquerque and, and went back to New York. No, I went back to my parents' house. <laughs> oh, you did. Okay, so you went back. To yeah. ha- you went back home. And how long were you there for? Well, I was there for a couple months, and um, I got this temp job. I went to a temp agency, and I took their placement test, and they said I scored higher than anyone had ever scored, and that they had the perfect job for me. And I was like, great. And I showed up at this place and it was answering phones at a sump pump company because <laughs> the Chicagoland area was flooding that spring and there was a lot of sump pumping happening. <laughs> My God. So, so that was the most humiliating job. There was no windows. There was no lunch break. And I found out pretty soon that I was not allowed to read books on my downtime. And so I quit. And I was just angry and depressed and brokenhearted and living with my parents. And it was like the all-time low of my life. Okay, so wait, the, and the, rela- and my, the relationship was over, I take it. It was over. Okay. Okay, so you're now... So you're- my friend Julia was interning at The New Yorker, and she found out that her boss needed a new assistant. And Julia called me in Chicago and said, send your resume. And I said, no, you don't understand. I'm so depressed. I can't, I can't move to New York right now. And Julia was like, come on, just send your resume. It'll make you feel better. So I, I, I think I even called my ex-boyfriend, and I was like, I can't move to New York, right? And he was like, are you crazy? You have to do this. And I was like, okay. So I sent my resume. I had a phone interview, and then I flew to New York and had an in-person interview. And I basically, um, first I worked for my boss at this comic book company that she runs out of her home. And then I later, a few months later, I moved to the New Yorker proper. But um she she was great and she like loaned me money right away. She was like she was like I'm sure you're probably looking for an apartment. Like I can you know give you an advance on your you know wages. You can look for a place. I mean she was really great. Oh wow, God, that's awesome. So take us uh, inside the New Yorker. Like what is it like to work there? What was it like for you in those like is it, describe the surroundings? Is it just a bunch of cubes? Is it everyone? You know I don't know. I feel like everyone would be like really uh, refined and. There's got to be like all this like uh, extremely intelligent conversation happening everywhere. Like, what what, what, what is it actually like? Tell, well, us, tell us the real story. It's in this huge. It's in this huge office building in Times Square. So going to work is like going. You know, you have to go through the like herds of masses to even get inside. And then it's just an office. It's my only nine to five office job I've ever had in a cubicle. There's just a cubicle maze. Um. It's, it was, it was really horrible. (laughs) It was, um, everybody whispers. I didn't make any friends. I tried befriending the assistant to the photo editor who was on the other side of my cubicle wall. We got lunch a few times and I thought, I just was like desperate to be her friend because I thought that we had something in common. We just seemed similar. We seemed to have similar personalities and she wore kind of weird clothes. I love her clothes. And we just, like, never really became friends. It was always, it felt like me chasing her, trying to, like, convince her to be my friend, and it never felt like we were really friends. 
Yeah. It's like you're trying to give her cake and she wouldn't eat it or something. Do you know what I'm saying? Just to bring that, that whole yeah. metaphor back into play. But, uh, were there like, uh, like, can you, like, you know, were there people of note walking around, uh, you know, at the New Yorker, like, like in the offices, were you seeing people on a regular basis? Yeah, sometimes. One time, um, John Lahr, the theater critic, brought Jeffrey Rush, was, was leading Jeffrey Rush around the office, because I think he was in town to do that play, Exit the King, and he, Jeffrey Rush was turning the offices. And he, like, I work in the cover art department, and he came into our department, and I just was like, oh, because I love Jeffrey Rush, and I he's a huge man, and I was just, like, looking at him, like, so excited, and John Lahr was like, you know, is your boss here? And I was like, no, she's not here, and I could have given them a tour of... I mean, the department's really small. I could have given him a tour, but instead, like, John Lard, the theater critic, was, like, giving him a tour of my department, and I just kind of had to sit at my desk. Oh, my God. Okay, and yeah, as a, as a theater person, that must have been a thrill, because he's got all, like, the book. <laughs> like, Jeffrey Rush has, like, real chops, right? Yeah, he's amazing. Yeah. So, um, so what, I mean, aside, so it was just a friendless uh, experience, and everyone's whispering, and it seems a little chilly. I mean, is everyone just like so focused on writing brilliant profiles and essay? You know what I'm saying? Is that the thing? Is it just like a a, a professional situation where the things are so focused and intense that there's no room for uh, like hanging out and being friendly? Or, or do you think that it's just like a personality type? Like, how do you assess the fact that it was so inaccessible on the human level? I'm not sure. I mean, any any cubicle you walked by and you looked at the person in that cubicle, you thought to yourself, like, that person is working really hard. <laughs> My God, it's like a it's like a uh, like a monastery or something. Yeah. So did you? Yeah. Obviously, you wanted out. Like you, how long how long were you there before you started thinking to yourself, like, this is not for me, or I need to get out of here? Oh, very soon it was clear I wanted to get out of there. I ended up staying for a whole year, but about every three months I would go to my boss and beg her to let me go back to the comic book job because I loved working for her and I was learning so much, but the comic book job was just more my style <laughs> um, than this office job. Right. And what, what kind of, when you say comic book job, like what were you doing there? Um, well, I was doing everything because it was such a, such a small company. Like, I really love being busy, and I love having responsibility. And I cannot stand being bored. It's, like, really painful for me. So at the New Yorker, I was basically just a secretary. I answered the phone. I carried artwork from one place to another. I put things in packages. And that was so boring to me. But I also know, like, it is what it is. I got to work at the New Yorker, and I was a secretary. Like, you know... You got to do the job you're there to do. Right, right, exactly. Well, and it's like, yeah. But I miss being at a small company and doing everything. And I did all the bookkeeping and I talked to all the artists and I did readings in public and I did everything. Yeah. Well, and then what about, uh, what about the, the novel that you were working on? I mean, this was coming into shape in Albuquerque and then did it continue, obviously, as you got um, back to New York eventually? I, I had stopped working on it um, for months. And then I think maybe maybe six or nine months I stopped working on it. And then the fall that I was working at The New Yorker, I got an email from an agent that said she uh, loved my poetry and she'd been reading my blog. And on my blog, I talked about the novel I was working on. And she was like, are you really working on a novel? Can you send me some? 
So I sent her the first 50 pages and she asked me for a synopsis and I didn't know how to do a synopsis because I didn't know how the novel ended. So I made up, so I made up an ending for my book now, in did, the synopsis. Did, I, did the ending that you made up in the synopsis wind up sticking? No. Okay. <laughs> okay. Cause that's not how I really work. <laughs> well, no, I was going to say, cause like, but you know, but the thing is though, is that sometimes when somebody forces your hand, uh, like it, because because it's so much work, so much work, like creative energy must be spent to figure out the ending of a story or the ending of a novel. It's something that I think writers can uh, have a tendency to want to avoid just because there's pain involved. And then if mm-hmm. you, you get into a situation professionally where your hand is forced, uh, sometimes you know all of a sudden the ending shoots out of you. So I, I mean, I think it's at least possible. But you came up with a, at least a satisfactory ending to her, and then you set about finishing it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I was really motivated to work on it once I knew that there was someone who's actually interested in reading it. Well, that's unbelievable. So you had like a really, I mean, you have, you've had like a, an, an unusually productive online literary life because you didn't go out even soliciting. This woman came to you. Mm-hmm. So how are all these people finding Yeah. You? Like, was it just linked from someplace or, you know what I'm saying? Like, this is just your personal poetry blog? Um, well, she'd read my poetry published. I mean, I think I, I figured out pretty quickly that online was the place to be. I mean, that's where I'm most comfortable. And when I was sending out work, I was like, I'm not going to print this out and staple it and put it in an envelope and mail it to a literary journal that I'm not going to hear from for six months. I'm going to email this and like hear back in a couple of weeks if they want it or not. So I think I was at the beginning. I don't know if I was at the beginning, but I was when online publishing was first um, getting popular, I was there. And I think that was just like lucky coincidence. Yeah. So I was getting stuff published online and people could find it. They could go, I mean, if you search me, I was coming up. And that's the way that it worked. That's awesome. You know? And so when yeah. did you, when did you, uh, like how long did it take you then to finish the book from that point? Um, probably another year. Okay, and then what about the maybe, public? What about the pub, what about the publication process? Did that go as easily? That didn't go as easily as I recall, right? Yeah, she sent it out, and um, we just got tons of glowing rejections um, uh, from everybody, just about how much they loved the voice, and it was so funny. And then they just they didn't know how to market it. They didn't know how to peg it. Some people thought it was YA young adult, and it's not. <laughs> I would say. It's about a 22-year-old. Like, I feel like when you're 14, you want to read about a high school senior. That's YA. You want to read about someone slightly older than you who's still, like, in your world. Right. But my book isn't for a 14-year-old. It's about this very particular moment after college where you're forced to become an adult and enter the real world outside of school. Well, and I also think that, like, you know, there it's a particularly precarious time for... Uh, this generation, for that generation. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, this has not been an easy time for people making that transition. So it seems like that, you know, it, Absolutely. Seems, like, it seems like your story would, would have been easy to market. I don't know. I don't understand how they have so much trouble pegging. No, things. this was definitely a timing thing because she was sending it out right before that first class to graduate after the recession. And that's, that was the first generation that just didn't, or the first class that just didn't have jobs waiting for them at hedge funds when they graduated. Do you know what I mean? Right. So when she was sending it out, this wasn't really a cultural phenomenon yet. Um, and so nobody would take it. And, and then um, 
we'd basically given up and she told me, you know, I'm really sorry, but I think you're just going to have to write a second novel. And then, because a lot of people had said, like, please send us her next book. We'd love to read more of her work. And then um, a friend of mine had interned at Melville House and said she would give my book directly to the editor. And she was very strategic about it. And she gave it to him right before Thanksgiving weekend, 2010. And he read it over the weekend and emailed me on Monday and said, um, can I take you to coffee? Is your book still available? Wow. And, and it was like a dream. <laughs> so how did you react? Um, I was probably like covered in chills and like shaking. Okay, so that you didn't like weep and like raise a fist above your head in triumph or anything. Like it was more subdued. <laughs> no, no, I think I was like freaked out. Also, like, like trying to tell myself, but that doesn't mean he'll take it. Like that doesn't mean you're getting your book published. Like don't get excited because you don't know what that means. And like you're just gonna have a meeting with him. Right, <laughs> right. And so then you have this, you have this coffee meeting, and and they're like, you know, we want to take on you as an author, and we want to take on your poetry book, and like where did you get your MFA? And I'm like, I don't have one. And they're like, Oh, she's self taught and like smiled. And like, like I felt like these are my people. People (laughs) I found my tribe. (laughs) Um, well that's awesome. So, and they took the poetry book in, in unison with the novel. Yeah. They were like, we want to publish your work. And I was like, are you serious? (laughs) (laughs) That's a dream come true. It really was in more ways than one, yeah. Well, and it's, I mean, getting a collection of poetry published is no easy feat. So, I mean, you know, hats off for that. No, not at all. That alone. Yeah. And so then what what now and then what next? What now? Well, uh, my poetry book just came out, so I've been doing some stuff for that. Um, So I've had two books come out in one year, which has been insane. It seemed like a good idea at the time, and now I'm like, what did I do? But I guess I'll never be this young again, and so I might as well have done it. Yeah, of course. Um, and what's next is I'm working on a memoir about grief and digital mourning, so how my generation or everyone um, like uses Facebook to grieve or social media, how we're talking about death on social media. Oh, wow. Okay, and this is a memoir as well, so you, you've been grieving... I mean, I, I should say, I think I believe I remember the, the loss of your ex-boyfriend. Is that correct? Yeah, the ex-boyfriend I lived with in New Mexico died in a motorcycle accident last summer. And then I went to two more funerals this year for people my own age. Ugh. And so I'm very conscious of of what it means to be in your 20s and lose someone in their 20s. And how do we, what are the, like, what are the rules for this? And what are the rituals for this? And are we just making it up as we go along? Well, it does seem so strange, like not just with people that we know intimately um, who pass away, but also when I watch like how the how people grieve collectively for dead celebrities and how this all happens. Like as soon as you you see a celebrity death, you can just click over to Twitter and just like watch it come in. And it's there's absolutely some, there's something you know. I find it sometimes I can find it really heartwarming. I got to be honest. Like you know, some someone will write something. I guess it all depends on the quality of the grief, or if that's the way to put it. Um, but a lot of times I can mm-hmm. find, I can find myself thinking like, this is weird and gross. Like, why are we doing this on Facebook? Like it's, it feels like it cheapens the, the loss somehow or something. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. It brings up questions. Mm-hmm. It brings up questions at the very least. So it seems like a time, another timely book. Oh, I hope so. Yeah. So, um, well, I wish you well on it and I thank you for doing thank this you. A, a second time. I'm glad there's not an echo this time around. <laughs> Yay, I'm so glad we succeeded. Yes, indeed. And uh, best of luck with the rest of all the, you know, the work that you're doing to promote 
um, you know, dispatch and best of luck writing this memoir. Is this, is the memoir going to be published by Melville House as well, or are you going to go out with it? Oh, I don't know yet. It's too soon to say. Too soon I mean, to I'll, I'll offer it to Melville House, but I, I can't. I can't say like. You better publish this book. (laughs) (laughs) I think you should say that right now. Go on the record and make a threat. Uh, Well, listen, best of luck with it, and thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me. Great. Thank you so much. Okay, guys, there you go. That is the show. That is Lee Stein. Go get her books. The novel is called The Fallback Plan, and the poetry collection is called Dispatch from the Future. Both are now available from Melville House. You can find Lee on the web at leestein.blogspot.com. Her Twitter handle is rhymes with B, and she's on the Facebook as well. This show has a website. It's otherpeoplepod.com. It has a Twitter feed, at otherpeoplepod. I have a Twitter feed, at Brad Listy. If you would like to read my intensely personal tweeting, the show has a Facebook presence. And if you would like to email me for whatever reason, tell me what you think. The address is letters at otherpeoplepod.com. Thank you to Kill Rockstars for all the great music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. And uh, what else can I tell you? I am glad to be home. I'm getting over the jet lag. It hasn't been too terrible uh, considering how far I traveled and uh, in such a short span of time. And hopefully I'm now going to be able to write the end of this book, this novel that I've been working on. Uh, I'm at the point where I need to get it out of me. Uh, I think I'm past that point, actually. I need to get it over with. I need to get it dislodged from my being and uh, externalized once and for all. Please remember that H.L. Mencken died of a heart attack and that Don Powell was buried in a potter's field. Uh, Have I already used that one? Have I told you that already? Anyway, I'll be back again soon. Thank you, as always, for listening, you guys. I appreciate it. Thank you for spreading the word uh, and for rating and reviewing the program on iTunes. Uh, It really does help the cause. I am now going to go venture out of doors. I have not ventured out of doors in nearly 24 hours, which seems unhealthy. I feel a little gross. I feel like I need some fresh air. Uh, But here's the thing. The air in Los Angeles is not fresh. So I guess I'm just going to go outside anyway. I'm going to walk outside into the desert heat, into the sweltering, burning desert heat, the oppressive desert heat, and uh, I'm going to inhale smog. Do you hear me? I'm going to inhale smog. (laughs) 